Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a report from the Munich Security Conference in Germany, at which Vice President Kamala Harris spoke along with European leaders and Wang Yi, China's top foreign policy advisor to Xi Jinping, who said about the war in Ukraine, quote, This warfare cannot continue to rage on promising that Beijing is ready to present a peace proposal. Joining us from Munich is Charles Kupchin, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security. He's the author of Power and Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order, and How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, and his latest book, Isolationism, A History of America's Effort to Shield Itself from the World. Then, with the release of texts and emails from top Fox News anchors and Rupert Murdoch himself as a result of court filings in the lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems, the public is getting damning evidence that Fox is not a news operation but a propaganda outlet afraid of its own viewers, who they have indoctrinated with lies but cannot afford to lose them to Newsmax or other further-right platforms if they dared to tell what they know to be true. Joining us is an expert on propaganda, Peter Pomerantsev, a senior fellow at the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and an author and TV producer. He studies propaganda and media development and has testified on the challenges of information warfare to the United States House Foreign Affairs Committee, the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the U.K. Parliament's Defense Select Committee. His books include Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, and most recently, This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. Then finally, we'll examine the origins of the derailment in Ohio that release toxic chemicals into the environment, which turns out to be one of a thousand derailments per year. Joining us is Clyde Whitaker, the Ohio State Legislative Board Director for Smart Transportation, a rail workers' union who specializes in safety issues. We will discuss readily available safety equipment that could have prevented the derailment but has not been installed because of the capture of congressional Republicans by lobbyists from the rail companies whose priority is pleasing Wall Street over the safety of railway workers and the American public. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now from Munich is Charles Kupchin, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. 
and he spent the last three years of the Obama administration as special assistant to President Obama for national security. He's the author of The End of the American Era, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Geopolitics of the 21st Century, Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order, and How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles Kupchin. Good to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Munich Security Conference, at which you've been attending, uh, Charles, I guess the the highlight has been Vice President Harris saying that uh, Putin has committed crimes against humanity. I actually was struck by the earlier speech by France's President Macron. But tell me what you found to be the most compelling moment so far. Well, you know, the the, the mood at the at the meeting is is very upbeat and there is to some extent and and Harris the vice president started off by saying I am back a year after I stood on this stage warning of the possible Russian invasion and at that time we were concerned would NATO hold would Ukraine be able to put up a fight and we were worried well we now can look back and we can see that not only did NATO hold, but it is stronger than ever. And Ukraine has done a valiant job of, of defending itself. And then she kind of pivoted. And that, I think, is the theme of the meeting here, which is, and we need to stay the course. And so I've, I've took her reference to war crimes and the need to hold Russia accountable as a moral call to arms. She was speaking as much to American and European publics as she was to the people in the room to say, you know, this is not just a strategic battle. This is about the future of democracy and about crimes against humanity. So I think she was really trying to rally uh, the forces both uh, at home and in Europe to build a strong political consensus for year two in this war. The other important speech, of course, uh, and since the U.S. and China are not speaking, the fact that the top foreign policy advisor to Chinese President Xi Jinping, Wang Yi, made a speech in which he said, this warfare cannot continue to rage on, referring to what's happening as a war. What do you mean, and what did you take away from that, particularly the fact that he's going to be meeting with, or maybe he's already met with Secretary of State Blinken, so at least the top leadership in the U.S. and China are finally talking to each other? Well, it was a it was a hard edged speech. You know, he called the American response to the to the balloons, the shoot down hysterical and and an overreaction. He, he was pretty critical of of American unilateralism and trade policy. But I agree with you, Ian. I did hear a a, a sort of we need to to bring this war to an end sooner rather than later. And he talked about a Chinese peace proposal. Uh, I don't know exactly what's in it. I don't know whether he intends to present it to the Russians or present it more broadly. Uh, but it looks like you know, the, the Chinese are ready to try to play more of a, of a diplomatic role. Uh, as of when I left the conference about an hour ago, we still didn't know whether Wang Yi would meet with Secretary Blinken. It sounds like you have more information than I do, but people were speculating throughout the day. 
will the two of these uh, of these top foreign policy officials sit down? Because I think everybody knows, given the state of U.S.-China relations and given the state of, of world affairs, that we need a strategic dialogue between Beijing and Washington. So what do you think is China's motives here? Because Xi Jinping, back at the time of the Olympics, said, basically, I'm all in with Russia. We're inseparable. But on the other hand, they do a lot of trade with Europe. And Europeans are increasingly uh, annoyed with China for its support of Russia. I, I don't think they're actually supporting them with weapons. They are getting weapons from or ammunition from North Korea. But what do you think is the reason why China showed up at this meeting and has offered to mediate some kind of a peace settlement? I think that uh, the Chinese have woken up to the fact that they've lost ground diplomatically. Uh, Here in Europe, there was concern about what was called wolf, wolf warrior diplomacy during the pandemic. The war in Ukraine has to some extent spilled over into relations with China. Europe is now taking a stronger stand against China. You know, great power competition is back in spades, and Russia and China are on the other side of this dividing line. And so I think the Chinese have become concerned that they uh, they now face the possibility of a of a new Cold War, not just with the United States, but with Western liberal democracies more broadly. And I think they're trying to wage a, a charm offensive, maybe too strong a word, but they're trying to, to recover some lost ground and to demonstrate that they are willing to play a mediating role in this war. We shall see. And what about uh, Scholz, the German chancellor, who's been accused of foot dragging, promising uh, and not delivering? They've also, the Germans, of course, have just had this spy scandal where a top official in the BND, their foreign intelligence service, has just been arrested as a Russian mole, and he's been in charge of cyber and signals intelligence and had shared information from the National Security Agency and British GCHQ, etc., which apparently has been passed on to the Russians, about the Ukraine war itself and what NATO knows about what the Russians are up to. So that sounds like a pretty damaging uh, leak. Yeah, I mean, on the on the European front, I would say that the decision not taken long ago to provide tanks, Abrams from the United States, Leopards from Germany and other European countries, that puts a certain amount of wind in Schultz's sails because he was being criticized for holding back. I would say the conversation today was more about speed. We need to get these tanks, we need to get munitions, we need to get air defense into Ukraine more quickly because the Russians are launching an offensive. We don't have time. That was one of the main messages that we heard from uh, Foreign Minister Kuleba, the Ukrainian foreign minister, today at a luncheon and throughout the, the day. And I would say the main theme on coming from Emmanuel Macron, from Schultz, from uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the, the head of the European Commission, was what they called geopolitical Europe, more Europe. 
Uh, Macron has been beating that drum for quite a long time, but he called it strategic autonomy, a more autonomous Europe that enjoys a certain amount of freedom from being under the American wing. That kind of narrative is gone now because the U.S. and Europe have come back together to stand up to Russia and Ukraine. So I would say the theme uh, coming from the European leaders was we need Europe to do more. We need Europe to be more geopolitical, but not independently from the United States alongside the United States. Well, it seems like Macron is really kind of, I don't know how personal it is, but it feels like he really feels burned by Putin. Because you, you recall, he went to Moscow to try and stop the war from happening and went out on a limb. And Macron, in his speech, listed four clear defeats Putin's already suffered. The war he had started was long, not rapid, not legitimizing, but neo-colonial, not strategically prescient, but one that has drawn Sweden and Finland into NATO's orbit, and not prestige-enhancing, but mistrust-engendering. Then he went on to say, at the moment, the hour of dialogue hasn't come yet because Russia chose war and committed war crimes. Russia cannot and must not win this war, and Russia's attack must fail. A year ago, I spoke to Putin, and he assured me that the Wagner group of mercenaries uh, had nothing to do with him. It was purely a business project. I accepted that. Today, we see that the Wagner group is involved in Russia's war against Ukraine. It has become a new mafioso tool used to create crimes and injustice. So do you read it the same way that I do? Yes, I, I think you're right. I, I think there are a, quite a, a, a long list of uh, European leaders who feel burned by Putin. Merkel, Angela Merkel, would be at the top of the list because she supported Nord Stream 2, this pipeline that was bringing gas, a new pipeline, gas from Russia to Europe. And all of a sudden, Putin rears up and invades Ukraine. Macron, until the last hour, was, was talking to Putin. He still talks to Putin on the phone from time to time. Uh, and so, yeah, they do they do feel like uh, they uh, reached out to Putin. They tried to make a relationship with Russia and Russia walked away and bit the hand that that had reached out to them. Uh, and, and you know, I, I think, again, that all the, the 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 leaders were rallying the forces, staying the course. And I, I have to add, Ian, that on some level, I think there was almost too much of it. Uh, and it, the the appeal to stay the course, to help the Ukrainians achieve victory, in my mind, to some extent, revealed the uncertainty, the disquiet that we all have about where this where this war is going, uh, because we're we're headed into some critical months. The Russians have been rebuilding. They appear to be launching an offensive. The Ukrainians are going to be fighting back. But this is a this is going to be a, a critical set of 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 months coming up, and and I think that all the folks here who are who are speaking up are are in some ways worried about the coming months and trying to steady publics on both sides of the Atlantic that have not really gone wobbly, but need to be prepared to make sacrifices for the future, and, and it's particularly I think telling in the United States where we now have 
Republicans in control of the House. The Republicans on the far right have said no more blank check for Ukraine. It's enough already. And so we just don't know right now how easy or hard it's going to be for Biden to get everything he wants when it comes to future appropriations to assist Ukraine. Well, Schultz, the German chancellor, said it's going to be a long war and that NATO should prepare for that. I noticed that Lindsey Graham was there. What's your reading on how much the Republicans can hold? Obviously, the Senate is not a problem, but the House could be a problem because McCarthy had to sell his soul to the Freedom Caucus to get the job. So they've got leverage over him. How much of a danger do you think is the pro-Putin caucus in the House and in at Fox News with Tucker Carlson, etc.? I'm less worried about the pro-Putin caucus than I am about the neo-isolationist sentiment that exists actually on both the far right and the far left. Uh, you know, the need to spend money at home. Why are we shipping weapons to Ukraine when we have unmet needs here in the United States? I don't think that in the in the near term, this what I would call neo-isolationist inclination will be a problem. I think a lot depends on what unfolds in the next two, three, four months. If this war doesn't go well, if it seems to be bogging down, then I think you could get some pushback in Congress. If Ukraine continues to make, success, make progress, takes back some more land, particularly in the south, what we call the land bridge from Donbass and the Russian border down to Crimea, then I think you will see the, the, the Senate, the House stay the course. Uh, but right now, you know, Biden, Schultz, others, they're still being criticized for not doing enough, for going too slow. Let's wait and see. It's possible that two, three, four months from now, you will see those on the other side of this debate. They're doing too much. Let's ease off. They could grow stronger. Well, there is an asymmetry, though, isn't there, Charles, in the sense that Russia is able to destroy the infrastructure in Ukraine itself and decimate its cities and its industrial base, whereas Ukraine can't go after Russia's uh, industrial base and its factories and weapons productions and storage and and troop concentrations, etc. They're limited. So the only equalizer in this war is NATO's weaponry because the Ukrainians completely depend upon it. And it's not being delivered very fast. And for the, since the beginning of this war, there's been a lot of hand-wringing and delays over whether or not should do it. And we don't want to provoke Putin and he could, you know, it could lead to nuclear war, etc. They seem to have gotten over that. But the, still, the lag is there. And you've got Russia in the midst of a big offensive around Bakhmut. On the 21st, coming up in a few days, uh, Putin's going to make a speech before the Duma. So he seems to be determined to win this time. What was the mood in, I mean, does anybody think that Putin could actually succeed in this new offensive? I think the view from the, from the military analysts is that we're going to see some back and forth, that the Ukrainians may make some progress in the South, the Russians, as they've done over the last few weeks, 
may make halting progress in the north, pushing further into Donbass. I think that some people believe Putin's initial uh, um, or let's call it the next phase of this war is going to be focused on getting back to the borders of Donbass. He annexed four regions, but doesn't have control of those four regions. Uh, you're right to say that there is an asymmetry because, yes, the Russians are hitting at Ukrainian infrastructure. And as a consequence, we equalize the playing field by providing weapons. There is, however, another asymmetry. And that is that Russia, to some extent, cares more about this than, say, the United States or the French or the Germans, right? They've already sacrificed, we hear, 200,000 Russians dead and, and injured. They're, they have more skin in the game. And it's because of that that we are treading carefully on this question of escalation. And I give, I give Biden credit. He has continued to put more weapons, higher quality weapons, but he is still observing certain red lines, no long range missiles, no fighter aircraft, at least for now, no NATO boots on the ground, no no fly zone enforced by NATO, because his judgment is that that would raise to unacceptable levels the possibility of a NATO-Russia war, of World War III. Another issue that, that was discussed here, not openly, but kind of behind closed doors, is what about Crimea? Should the Ukrainians make a run at Crimea? Or, because it does belong to them after all, uh, or does that raise too high a risk because the Russians have their Black Sea fleet ported in Crimea? So the, but the, these are the kinds of judgment calls that are being made about how to help Ukraine get as far as they can without perhaps going too far. Well, I thank you for joining us, Charles. I appreciate it very much. It's been my pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Charles Kupchin, who was the Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, and he spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security. And he's the author of The End of American Era, The U.S. Foreign Policy and the Geopolitics of the 21st Century, How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of America's Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. He joined us from Munich on Saturday evening. We're going to take a brief station break and back with the damning evidence that Fox is not a news operation but a propaganda outlet afraid of its own viewers who they have indoctrinated with lies but cannot afford to lose them to Newsmax or other further right platforms if they dared to tell what they know to be true. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Peter Pomerantsev, who's a senior fellow at SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Institute of Global Affairs at the London School of Economics. An author and TV producer, he studies propaganda and media development and has testified on the challenges 
of Information War to the United States House Foreign Affairs Committee, the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the U.K. Parliament Defence Select Committee. His books include Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, and most recently, This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Pomerantsev. Hi, thank you for that. Um very uh, grandiloquent introduction. <laughs> well, you've earned it all, and I'm fascinated by the exposure of internal emails and texts that were released from top Fox News anchors and Rupert Murdoch himself as a result of these court filings in the, in the lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems. But it reveals that if in case people hadn't noticed it, that Fox is not really a news operation, it's a propaganda outlet, but it's curiously afraid of its own viewers who they have indoctrinated with lies, but now they can't afford to lose them to Newsmax and other further right platforms if they dared to tell what they know is true. So this is a different form of propaganda than one that you have written about in Russia. How would you describe the version of this kind of commercial form of propaganda? Well, you know, it's, it's still, whether it's political or commercial, it's still um, what propaganda is all about, is, is all about kind of like fitting yourself to the needs and demands and urges and often unconscious uh, and often quite cruel desires of your audience. Uh, the propagandist understands the deeper sort of vulnerabilities of an audience and, and kind of exploits them, essentially. But in that sense, they're also a slave to that audience. So if, if what the audience desires is um, sadism or humiliation or feeling superior to others, you, you, you do that. Um, and and if you go back over Murdoch's career, I'm now thinking of his years in Britain as running the sun and all the tabloids. He always used to say, actually, I'm just giving you what you want. Don't blame me. And he was of course, being in many ways very cynical because he was making so much money and power from this. But that's the game propagandists play. You know, they, they try to tap into audiences' desires and, and exploit them. And, and But in a sense, they then become trapped within within that story. So there's, there's something very archetypal about it and very typical. I'm sort of looking back over the history of propaganda. You know, Hitler worked so hard to to show Germans that he controlled sort of time and space. You know, this was this whole idea. He was the great prophet. Um, and then his propaganda kind of fell apart when he could no longer fulfill that. Um, so we become, propagandists become slaves to their propaganda. I think that's actually quite typical in a way. Well, it's an odd situation, isn't it? Who, who owns who? It almost suggests that the audience really controls Fox as opposed to Fox controlling the audience. But on the other hand, They've cultivated and grown an audience through propaganda and lies. And I guess this is a comment on America itself, is it not? That there's this constituency in America that really wants to believe or deeply believes that Trump won the election. And therefore, Fox had to go along with it because otherwise they'd be, they would alienate their viewers. I mean, the viewers aren't locked into Fox Fox is locked into them. I think so. I, I don't know if it's a whole parallel about, about, about America. I, I don't know if I've, I'm still quite new in America. I've been here. I'm, a, I'm at Johns Hopkins University. I've only been here one and a half years. Still making up my mind about America. Uh, but America is definitely a country, um, really at a very deep level, 
that 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 needs and lives for and creates these these virtual realities and American dreams. And that's what's so inspiring about it, but also then gets caught up in its own fantasies and lives inside these uh, bubbles. And 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 that can also you know be very dangerous. It's also the country of cults and and very dangerous movements that that follow weird uh, chimeras in, in, in the desert of the mind. Um, and I suppose Fox News is, is also part of that. So this is what makes America so exciting, is that it, it's constantly creating new realities, remaking reality, but also then incredibly vulnerable to, to propaganda. Um, Jacques Ellul, the great historian of propaganda, talked about how you know America really being this incredible experiment of fusing completely different people, completely different walks of life, completely different histories, languages, religions. And the only way you can fuse them is through a, a, a common sort of dream or a common common propaganda. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a common kind of set of myths and stories you live with. But but it does mean that America, compared to a lot of other countries I've been to, really you know, does have this negative phenomena of just veering off into bizarre alternative realities. So if you could have a motto for a program, my motto for background briefing is that we're trying to create a rebuild a reality-based community in post-truth America. So given this brazen evidence that Fox is not a news operation, which, it, you know, obviously it was hard to not notice that, but now it's pretty blatant that it's a propaganda operation. Is there any way to change the rules here? You know, I mean, there's no consensus in this country about what is real and what is true. There sort of used to be in the days of Walter Cronkite, but mm. now there's not, and people do what they call reality shopping. Yeah. So is this a lost cause, do you think, Peter? No, not at all. And we've had this before, uh, historically, uh, often when a new information technology appears and you know can sweep you up into this alternative reality. It's been well documented in, in, the, in very dangerous times, Germany of the 1930s, for example. Um, so you, we can't go back to Walter Cronkite America. We're never going to go back to um, two or three TV channels establishing a shared reality and kind of being in a zat for a public sphere through, you know, a show like Crossfire. That's gone. That's gone completely. So the antidote, though, to this, you know, hallucinated alternative reality is communities of people across the country of different types of different creeds and different political views coming together in a common active exploration of reality. Let me let, let me give you an example from the work actually. So it's often good to look at enough in another place to to be able to think about this at a distance. So at the moment, um, one of the projects I'm co-director of in Ukraine is called the Reckoning Project. And it's an attempt to push back against the impunity and the disinformation and the war crimes committed by Russia and Ukraine. Russia doesn't just commit war crimes. It's kind of saying we can lie and get away with it and we can spread so much disinformation, you'll never know what the truth was. And we're bringing together like a coalition of people who want to find the truth. So journalists, obviously, but not just journalists, lawyers, first responders, you know, ambulance people, doctors who might get to the scene of a crime, ordinary citizens, and all coming together in this process of establishing truth together. I think that's very important for many reasons. Firstly, the process of doing that builds trust, because of course, what uh, all these negative propaganda operations do is they try to destroy trust, 
say you don't know what the truth is. Therefore, you know, just follow a strong leader who will sort out the world for you. I mean, it's not uh, these are always authoritarian leaning propagandas, the Putin one or the or, or, or the Fox one. They sort of say at the end, the world is confusing. Don't trust anyone. Everything is a lie. You've been lied to. You need a strong leader to lead you through this murky world. So when we work together, we establish trust. It's also very enabling and people develop a sense of agency. You know, they have a sense that they're part of a greater project of finding out the truth. Um, and and often it, I think it has to be tied to justice as well. You know, if there's been some great injustice, people can campaign for that. Um, so I think I think that's the way to do it. Um, I don't I think we live in a world where you don't have propagandists and propagandees. That's the academic term. So someone who's beaming out the disinformation and someone who's receiving it. We live in a world online where we're all propagandists in a way. We're all sharing, retweeting, persuading all the time. And so the way to battle that is by getting people involved in this common endeavor. Um, and and I think that um, I think I think Ukraine is a very interesting place to look at. Uh, if anybody wants, we have a whole bunch of articles out, out this week uh, in The Atlantic and Time, which are really these kind of like communal efforts of researchers, lawyers all coming together to establish the truth on a very, very granular level. Um, so I think that's that's the long term solution. Um, but I think as we search for these, there could be other solutions. Um, we have to understand that it's not just about knowledge. It's not just about epistemology, if we're going to be philosophical. You know, what the propagandists do is is feed people's sense of alienation, their sense of atomization, their sense that they don't have any agency. And they exploit that ruthlessly and make you feel strong by being part of an angry group that usually gets to look down on others. But that's what they're working on. And, and of course, just thinking that you know, simply providing better information will somehow cure that. No, you've got to look at the emotional, the emotional sort of needs below everything and then connect those emotional needs with the search for truth and a shared reality. I want to talk further about Ukraine, but just to finish up on Fox, what we're learning now from these emails and texts as a result of the discovery from the Dominion voting systems lawsuit is that on January the 6th, on the day of the insurrection, Fox executives uh, refused to allow Trump to go on the air. And they thought that it would be irresponsible to put him on the air, even though Lou Dobbs wanted him and, and Trump clearly wanted to go on Lou Dobbs. So is that to say then that there was this great missed opportunity, which I'm sure historians will look at for, for decades to come, Shortly thereafter, the January 6th insurrection, we know that that Mitch McConnell made a speech on the House on the Senate floor that absolutely condemned Trump and even suggested the Democrats should literally <laughs> go after him and told them to get, more or less urge them to do so. Uh, same with Kevin McCarthy, he uh, condemned Trump, and it seems as if at Fox, Rupert Murdoch even had some resemblance of a conscience saying that we've got to stop this election denialism and maybe all three anchors should go on uh, together and say that Biden won the elections. This opportunity was clearly lost and Fox, of course, was responding to, they thought it was a terrible mistake that they called, that their election people called the election for Biden in Arizona 
uh, earlier than anybody else did, and that freaked them out, and they started to lose audience to uh, Newsmax. So that's when they made this business decision to lie, to make official their policy of lying. But again, that indicates that the public is driving it, at least a part of the American public really wants to believe in their Fuhrer, in Donald Trump and his lies. So just address, if you will, the notion of of a missed opportunity when people of conscience and, and decency should have all got together and extinguished this horrible lie that has metastasized now into where one of the two major political parties in this country, uh, its entire political platform rests on a lie. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, it's very, 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 very dangerous because, you know, democracy depends on, you know, it's a very, very delicate, you know, it's very dense, very rich, but very delicate uh, ecology and depends on so many things. And one of the things it depends on is having enough trust in, in these processes, being able to concede and how much you hate the other side going, OK, that was an election. Those are the rules. And we move on and look, try to win the next election. And and if you start undermining faith in those processes, then the democratic experiment is is in real danger. This is this is not something to be flippant about. Um, and and I don't know how far gone America is. I'd, I'd like to think that this is something that can still be reversed. Uh, I'd love to understand to what extent when people say in polls that they say they don't believe the election was was fair. What did they mean in detail? Uh, it's often very useful adding some qualitative research to the quantitative. You sometimes hear you sometimes see horrific numbers in, in sociology, which but you then explore and realize people are being a bit more nuanced. But maybe I'm clutching at straws. Um, I've certainly met Americans who who will tell me, oh, the election was rigged. And I'm like, OK, what do you mean? And they're like, well, all the mainstream media were against Trump. And, you know, deep down, the Republicans didn't like Trump either. And that's what they mean. And I'm like, OK, well, actually, that's something we can debate. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah, the polls are, are horrific. You know them better than me. Was it 20 percent, 30 percent of Americans think that the election was stolen? Something something really quite horrific. Well, just going back in the last few minutes here, Peter Pomerantsev, to Ukraine, what did you make of Vice President Harris formally determining that Russia's committed crimes against humanity in Ukraine? This came out, of course, the, the Munich Security Conference. So, you know, she even went on to mention the hideous crimes underway of you know, taking children from their families and then taking them to be re-educated. But mm-hmm. that's a part of a broader uh, horror that's going on where in the captured areas of Ukraine, the Russians have been killing the men who don't want to you know, disavow their Ukrainian identity, and they've exported thousands of young Ukrainian women to eastern Russia to become wives of Russian men, and they've captured these children, thousands and thousands of these Ukrainian children. They're sending them to Russia to be adopted by Russian families and be re-educated as Russians. It's beyond Orwellian in its horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I really suggest um, um, a piece that, that we had yesterday as part of the Reckoning Project, looking uh, in the Atlantic magazine uh, by um, our board member, Natalia Guminyuk, my co-director of the Reckoning Project, which is looks at uh, the occupation uh, around Kherson in southern Ukraine, going into real detail about some of the things you talked about, the deportations, the systemic murder of local intellectuals who represent Ukrainian culture, 
local elected officials and so on and so forth. Um, and, and really this, this attempt to sort of not just destroy what's there, which I would say already is in, in the realm of talking about intent to genocide, but also, and here's the really, the thing that I think we struggle with from a legal point of view, replace it with something new. You know, this kind of re-engineering, we will come, we will destroy Ukraine, and we will force a new reality onto you. And it's funny, I've been talking to lawyers a little bit recently about this. And, and this, you know, while the destroying of the present fits into various ideas about genocide, and we can intend to genocide is probably what we're talking about here. Um, this replacing it with something new, this re-engineering, this idea you could come and just reimpose a different identity and reality onto people and force it onto them at uh, the barrel of a gun, legally don't really have a term for it. Um, this was actually part of the thinking about how to define genocide in the 1930s, but it kind of got lost. Genocide became about the destruction of a group. But this sort of re-engineering, which is really creepy and really reflects the, you know, this sort of the sense of almost godlike stature that the leaders of the Kremlin have. They believe they are gods who have the right to come, murder and engineer a new reality onto people. Um, that doesn't really have a legal term. Bits of it have legal terms. Definitely deporting kids and sending them somewhere else is, is breaks all sort of Geneva conventions. But this overall plot to remake reality by force and reimpose a new one, we don't have a word for it. So we're on this journey in the Reckoning Project, apart from everything else, of really trying to understand, well, what is this word? Because we should remember that legal terms like crime against humanity or genocide, they were all, they appeared, you know, they appeared in the 1930s and 40s, really by two geniuses of law who came from Ukraine, Lauterpacht and Lemkin, um, who came up with this terminology to try to describe, at the end of the day, the horrors of Nazi Germany. But they were looking at Soviets' traditions and Tur Turkey's uh, genocide of Armenians as well. But we've got to remember that these, these, these definitions of law are attempts to make sense of shape and, in a way, discipline reality and discipline evil. And I wonder whether we need a new language to describe what Russia is doing now, maybe also what China is doing with the Uyghurs. I don't know enough about that case specifically, but we have to be open minded. Um, what Russia is doing boggles the mind. And I feel we need a new language, a new legal terminology to to contain and ultimately to help curb it. Well, Peter Pomerantsev, I thank you very much for joining us here today. All right. Ciao. Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Pomerantsev, who's a senior fellow at SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and a senior fellow at the Institute for Global Affairs at the London School of Economics, an author and TV producer. He studies propaganda and media development and has testified on the challenges of information war to the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee, the U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the U.K. Parliament Defence Select Committee. His books include Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, and most recently, This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the origins of the derailment in Ohio that released toxic chemicals into the environment. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocritics. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. I've had enough of reading things by neurotic, psychotic people. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Clyde Whitaker, the Ohio State Legislative Board Director for Smart Transportation, a rail worker union who specializes in safety issues. Welcome to Background Briefing, Clyde Whitaker. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And after the derailment, what, two weeks ago, I guess, in the small town of East Palestine, in Ohio, it's been sort of slow to build, but now there's a lot of national attention on the environmental impact and the inv- impact on the health of the people in the town. But we're also learning that there are a thousand derailments per year from American freight trains, and this particular train was apparently dangerously long. It only had two crew members and a trainee supervising a 1.7 mile long train of uh, over 150 rail cars and I take it that the train had a reputation its uh, number was 32N and they called it 32 Nasty and you have referred to it as a notorious train so what do we know about this train in terms of what a hazard it was? Okay so uh, the way trains are numbered, it's kind of like uh, daily flights that the airlines have. So this train, it carries um, cars that are bound for different destinations, different customers along the rail line. And then whenever it gets to its end point, it gets sorted out and put on different trains or shipped to the customer. Uh, typically from what I've gathered from various crew bases here in central Ohio, uh, People are, you know, kind of fearful how this is built. Uh, typically, the majority of the weight is on the rear end of the train, and that is uh, not a very good handling-type train. Uh, if you got tank cars on the rear of the train and the weight back there that sloshes back and forth within the car and can, you know, create excessive uh and uh, flak forces in the train. So um, the crews, uh, it, it did kind of catch me off guard whenever they called it the 32 Nasty. And out of all the crew bases I spoke with, every one of them knew about this train, even if some of them hadn't ran it. So, so why wasn't it classified as a high-hazard flammable train, HHFT, since it was carrying hazardous inflammable Final chloride. Well, it doesn't meet the uh, federal requirements for that, from my understanding. Uh, typically, uh, that standard is for PIH, uh, TIH type cars, uh, and there's a amount of cars and uh, liquid that you would have to meet or tonnage wise to get that standard. So. What are the regulations then, or how much are they lacking? Because we're told that, for example, the railway industry poured about uh, $6 million into President Trump's 2016 election and into the GOP, and shortly in 2017, Trump repealed a requirement for electronic braking as opposed to the air brakes that go back to the Civil War. Would that have made a difference in this train had it been installed and not stopped by the Trump administration? 
Well, I wasn't there operating the train, but um, being a railroader over 20 years and a locomotive engineer, uh, I'm going to say no to that question. On the electronic brakes, I don't think that'd be a factor because in this instance, it was a wheel bearing. Uh, I don't think it would have made any difference in stopping the train. Um, as far as the uh, reasoning behind that, what I feel we're missing the big picture on here is why that bearing caught on fire and was bad. And this went across several, uh, I believe, definitely at least two defect detectors. And that's what we're missing here. Uh, nationally, there's no regulation on defect detectors. They're typically spaced on average about 25 miles apart. Uh, they read anywhere because there's so many various types. There's not a uniform standard. Uh, these defect detectors can uh, measure the width, height, shiftable loads, hot wheel bearings, hot wheels to the rail, uh, dragging equipment, um, you know, a multitude. But we need to set standard. Uh, the defect detectors, uh, my personal belief, they need a hot wheel detector technology, a hot bearing technology, and a dragging equipment technology. All three of those combined every 10 miles. And then this kind of deal, we shouldn't be seeing that. And the railroads have implemented a algorithm type system called trending defect detectors. And again, you know, I go back, there's no standard, right? So depending on the railroad, the crew may receive an alarm if a car wheel is getting hot or the bearing is getting hot. And then that conductor, he'll go back, check the car out, make sure everything's okay, get back on the front end of the train, him and the engineer will go down the track. And there's other cases where there's a silent alarm that goes to a wayside desk and at a central dispatching center. The crew was unaware of this car getting warm and increasing temperature. So these wayside desks, they can tell the train to keep going on. And if it hits the second defect detector that's trending, they'll inform the crew. But again, I go back to the PSR part that um, these defect detectors not regulated. There's no set standard. There's just AAR guidelines to them. So if I'm if I own a railroad and you're on the train and you go past this defect detector and it's telling you this wheel's hot, I can actually tell you to keep going down the track, no matter what you're hauling, unless you're a key train. So, Clyde, just specifically what happened then, these bearings get hot, and I take it they spark, and if you had a what they call a hot box detector, it would, would warn you of these overheated bearings. And the overheated bearings, does that lead to the axle weakening and then breaking and then the train derailing? What specifically happens in this uh, case of an overheated bearing? So the analogy that I've used, let's say you're driving your vehicle. Uh, the wheel bearing in your front wheel on your car, let's say it overheats and it shares off. 
what happens to your car. The front tire falls off, your front end of your car goes down to the ground, and you wreck, right? Same thing with the train wheel. The wheel was held in by the truck assembly. In the truck assembly, the freight car sets on that via like a, a pin, so to speak. So whenever this bearing uh, collapses, the truck assembly fails, falls to the ground, and eventually that's going to catch something, uh, like on a road crossing or a defect detector or something, and then it derails. So should the Department of Transportation then mandate and require rail companies to deploy these heat sensors, which I believe are called hot box detectors, that would warn train crews that their bearings are overheated before the train derails? I mean, it wouldn't take that much. Can't you have video cameras or something that would detect this? Well, they typically work off infrared from what I've read and been told. Um, there's other different types of sensors as well. I believe we need regulation that more defect detectors are placed every 10 or so miles. Uh, a standard scanning type uh, to scan for multiple things, the hot wheel, the hot bearing, and the dragging equipment. And we need to take a look at the various railroads' rule books. There should be a set standard for these hot box detectors and how you react to them. Uh, like one company here on the eastern side of the United States, they have the ability to, in their rule book, say, hey, keep going down the track. We'll worry about it later. That's taking a chance with public life and my membership's life. I don't like that. Um, so that needs looked at. So a multitude of things there need regulated. The safest course of action should be no more silent alarms. If there is a trending car, that train needs to come to a safe stop. The conductor needs to go back, check it out. He's the guy running or you know, managing the train, he's responsible for the freight cars as well. And he needs to make a command decision in case something's wrong there, right? You know, it could be something simple. They may have stopped somewhere along the line. Somebody cranked a handbrake on the train. It happens. He could release that handbrake. They go down the track and nothing ever happens. Um, but we need to start taking the safest course and instead of patting Wall Street's uh, pocketbook, wondering how you're going to pay for your next Corvette, instead of moving these trains on down the line whenever something goes wrong, we need to take the safe course, stop the train, check it out. So given that there's 4.5 million tons of toxic chemicals shipped by rail each year, and a 1,000 derailments happen a year, and derailments presumably cost the uh, rail companies uh, money, I don't understand why they are reluctant. I mean, you're saying there are two fixes, that every 10 miles on the tracks itself, there are sensors that detect whether the train is overheating, and also on the trains themselves, you can have hotbox detectors. So neither are mandated by the Department of Transportation at this point, right? That's correct. So when in the 2017 bill that was stopped by the... Trump administration, at the behest of the rail companies and Wall Street, 
because they've been making massive profits uh, over the years and doing huge stock buybacks, by the way. So in that 2017 spiking of the of the bill to require electronic braking, was, were there other reforms like the hotbox detectors also killed? I don't recall the hotbox detectors being in that uh, piece of legislation that was shot down. Uh, the electronic brakes, I mean, that that would be a huge undertaking. Um, yeah, I mean, look at all the millions of rail cars we have in this country that would need that and overhauled. Uh, my understanding is ECP is a better system. Um I have never operated a train with ECP, but, you know, I can only go by the data that I've seen previous to this conversation. But the reforms that we're talking about would have prevented this accident uh, and this derailment in Ohio, the health effects of which we still don't know, and it's gotten national attention, clearly. We know that the rail company owners have taken nearly $200 billion in stock buybacks and dividends. They've reduced the workforce by nearly 30% because of this PSR, Precision Scheduled Railroading Strategy, that they've adopted. And if the electronic braking system is, is too expensive for them, would the hotbox detectors be anything like as expensive? In other words, what kind of resistance are there to doing the hotbox detectors? Well... Right now, from my viewpoint, the hot box detectors to protect the railroad's best interest, right? Meaning if they have a slight derailment, let's say a rail car goes on the ground, but we don't have a big pileup, right? Uh, typically, derailments only make the news when there's a big pileup. Uh, sometimes our derailments are basically like a fender bender. Uh, with the vehicle. Um, I strongly believe we would definitely get pushed back by the rail carriers and their uh, constituents. And who knows where that would end up at. I mean, it needs to happen. Uh, this PSR business motto, going back to that, uh, I've seen the workforce last year uh, to the point where it's bare bones across the board, every craft. You've got train dispatchers that at one point in time just dispatched certain districts that were upwards to two, 300 miles. Now they've combined those districts to where one dispatcher is doing the work of four dispatchers or more. Uh, carmen in the rail yards that inspect over 100 points on a rail car They've been cut to bare bones. Um, you know, typically it takes three to four minutes to inspect a rail car. And they're more qualified than anybody else to do so because they've went to school. That's their job. They know every bit of moving piece of that car. And now the railroads want that car inspected 90 seconds or less. How safe are you really being? all because they want that train out of the rail yard to show their metrics on how well they've done to make the stockholders happy. And that's not right. We're putting the community at risk, and we're putting the membership at risk that operate the trains. So that's my take on PSR. It's a 
it's a bad thing, and I believe STB needs to step in and squash it. STB being what? Uh, Surface Transportation Board. A part of the D- DOT? You, yes, my understanding, yes. So um, that's Pete Buttigieg has got to step up. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I think everybody needs to step up in the transportation area. Right. So. Okay. Well, Clyde, I appreciate the information and expertise that you're giving us here to clarify how this accident happened, and I thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Clyde Whitaker, who's the Ohio State Legislative Board Director for Smart Transportation, a rail worker union who specializes in safety issues. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.